It's January 22nd. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the White House says that the U.S. southern border is not secure. In fact, Joe Biden said he is open to massive changes to make it secure. We'll talk about that change of heart coming up. Second, tomorrow is a redo election in the state of Connecticut. It all has to do with fake ballots and ballot harvesting. We'll talk about election security coming up. Third, an update out of the Middle East this morning, including dead and injured U.S. military personnel. Plus, a lot of missiles were fired by a lot of countries over the past three days. We will cover it all later. A listener question today from Dylan in Sparks, Nevada, about Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. He dropped out of the presidential race yesterday. Dylan wants to know what that means for our State of the Union. That is the special that we started last week, so we'll talk about that. But first, let's get to that top story of the morning. The U.S. southern border is not secure. Many people have been saying that for a while now, but not the White House until now. Mr. Biden was asked on Friday if he thought that the border was secure, and he said, quote, no, it's not. I haven't believed that for the past 10 years, and I've said that for the past 10 years. Give me the money, end quote. The money piece that he's referring to there is regarding the big debate on Capitol Hill this morning about what should get funded, whether it is securing the southern border or funding the war in Ukraine. Mr. Biden and Democrats largely focus on Ukraine, while House Republicans largely focus on the border. Interestingly, after Biden admitted on Friday that the border was not secure, he said that he was willing to make, quote, massive changes, end quote, to his U.S. border policies, including changes to asylum laws. So taken together, that is an extraordinary change of rhetoric for Mr. Biden and his White House. Just a week ago, Biden was asked if the southern border could be classified as a crisis, and he said, no, absolutely not. As for what's driving this change, Biden's team says, well, there is no change, that he and Democrats have always wanted a stronger border. However, Republicans and the data would suggest otherwise. A record 300,000 illegals were encountered just last month, millions more since Mr. Biden moved into the White House. And the vast majority of all those illegals, at least 85 percent, have simply been let into the country. In fact, in some cases, the White House actually directed Customs and Border Protection officers to expedite the entry of illegals into this country. In fact, they did that with Chinese illegals. Biden's uh, critics say that that is a pretty clear demonstration that he is not really committed to making the border stronger. His critics also point to Mr. Biden's use of something called humanitarian parole. In short, that is a 1950s era law that was designed to be used in extremely limited cases for a very short period of time. Say a, a person or a family facing a medical emergency and they need to be let into this country for a surgery or treatment. But Mr. Biden has used that process to instead bring in foreigners by the tens of thousands each month. In fact, 30,000 a month for those uh, folks from places like Haiti and Venezuela, amongst others. And it is this system of paroling and asylum applications that remain at the heart of the debate this morning on Capitol Hill. Democrats in the White House still are very reluctant to give up their use of both parole and these very liberal asylum laws. Meanwhile, Republicans like House Speaker Mike Johnson continue to say that 
reform, uh, reforming these things, uh, it's got to be done in any future deal. And there is a deal in the works, specifically in the U.S. Senate. There's a lot of rumor about what might be in that or might not. But so far, it doesn't look very promising for those folks who want to limit migration, either legal or otherwise. And that has led Republicans like Donald Trump to issue some early warning shots that Republicans must not bend to Democrat open border preferences, or so he says. Instead, Mr. Trump and other Republicans, especially in the House, say that the GOP must be centrally focused on deportations. In fact, they they focus to this next horrific case. A Haitian man who was in this country illegally was charged with the rape, the battery, and the assault last fall of a developmentally disabled person in the city of Boston. He was then released with an ankle monitor, despite the fact that there was a request from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement folks to turn him over so that they could deport him back to Haiti. But Boston area authorities refused to do that because they are sanctuary cities, which, of course, protect these kinds of illegals, including rapists. For what it's worth, the illegal man in question, Mr. Pierre-Lucord-Emile, crossed over the border illegally in Texas back in December of 2020. He was in Boston awaiting his hearing with an immigration judge when he committed this heinous crime against this poor disabled person. So those are the facts and data this morning coming to us from D.C. on the crisis on the southern border. I think we can say that now. Let me pivot to my analysis and opinion. And let's talk about what is likely driving this change of heart by Mr. Biden. Because no matter the spin, this new rhetoric from the White House is change. And part of it is a simple political calculus. As I shared with you last week, Mr. Biden's approval numbers are at a record low. And that is being driven by, well, in no small part, his open border immigration policies. For instance, a CBS News poll showed that a record high of Americans, 68 percent, disapprove of his border policies and 63 percent say that they want him to be tougher. That matches another poll that I shared with you last week from the L.A. Times that even a majority of foreign born Californians want the same. They want new laws and a stronger border. And that is why, as the Wall Street Journal reported over the weekend, Mr. Biden told his advisors over the past four or five days that his main priority, politically speaking, is to see the number of illegal migration folks drop. That Those numbers need to plummet between now and November. After November? Well, that's less of a problem. In short, Mr. Biden's change of heart is all about politics, and we can say that this morning with high confidence. But I want to offer you something else with low to medium confidence. I'm working on confirming some reporting that I have heard from my sources in D.C. that the FBI and the U.S. intel community have increasing information that a terror attack is likely in the U.S. homeland in the short term. And a terror cell includes some of some of the folks who have crossed over the border illegally. I will keep you posted on this threat as I learn more. But just imagine the political fallout for Mr. Biden and Democrats come next November if they don't pivot right now towards stronger border policies. But putting that aside, here's the key takeaway. Whatever the reason for Mr. Biden's border pivot, it is not because of principle. It's about poll numbers or surviving the political fallout of a terror attack. As ever, if he manages to get through this and gets back into the White House, then one thing is for sure. The southern border will eventually open back up to the world. And we all know that, and we all know why. Mr. Biden and his party benefit from illegals, either through fraudulent voting or 
when they're counted in the U.S. Census, which, the uh, of course, changes the number of House seats the Democrats can likely win. We covered that extensively back in August. So based on my analysis and my opinion, that is the explanation behind Mr. Biden's pivot this morning. It is not about principle of wanting that to, to save the country. It is about power, both in November and well beyond. And speaking of power, we turn to our second report of the morning. The fight for power took a nasty turn in Bridgeport, Connecticut this past fall. Some Democrats were caught stuffing drop boxes with fraudulent ballots in a local mayoral race. And because of that, both the primary and the general election for the mayorship, they both have to be redone. And that starts tomorrow. So let's unpack exactly what happened this fall and why this case has become a lightning rod for many uh, Republicans who say it is illustrative of the nation's broken voting system. Democrats, however, argue this is not uh, much ado about nothing. This is an isolated case of fraud, nothing more. All right, well, either way, let's talk about what we know. Back in September, surveillance cameras caught two women shoving hundreds of fraudulent ballots into several drop boxes. They were allies of Bridgeport's incumbent mayor, Joe Ganim. The drop boxes were supposed to be used for voters who are sick or in a hurry, but they're often used around the country by what are called ballot harvesters, like these two gals. And these harvesters are operatives of political campaigns and organizations that gather early votes from their supporters. And it's totally legal. Although in some states, they have laws saying that only a relative or a caregiver can drop off a ballot, but other states don't. In fact, in California, you can actually get paid to harvest ballots. In the case of Bridgeport, the two gals, those uh, ballot harvesters, they were not legally authorized to handle those ballots, which they knew, but they did it anyway. In court, both women have refused to answer any questions about their behavior or who asked them to do it, citing their right to avoid self-incrimination. But nevertheless, their political boss, the mayor, Mr. Ganim, used those extra votes to beat his Democrat primary opponent by around 250 votes, give or take. He then went on to win another squeaker against the Republican in the general election. But a subsequent lawsuit was filed, and the judge threw out the entire election, both the primary and the general. And that is why the primary is now being conducted again tomorrow and the general election in February. So those are the basic facts out of Connecticut this morning, although I should note that some Republicans, including Donald Trump, have said this is a perfect example of the fraud that can or does happen nationally. They argue the drop boxes are rife for potential fraud as rules vary from state to state about how drop boxes are secured, videoed, emptied. And Mr. Trump and his critics are right on this. No two states are exactly alike in how they handle drop boxes or manage those ballot harvesters. Democrats, however, argue that, look, any corruption of drop boxes or ballot harvesting like we see and saw in Connecticut, well, those are extraordinarily rare. And when they do happen, they don't really impact the, the electoral outcome. Third, they say, maybe it's worth it because the small number of fraud cases actually then allow Boy, lots and lots of more Americans to vote, especially those who are disabled or stuck in their homes. In fact, that is the argument that is happening right now in states like Wisconsin. The Supreme Court there ruled that drop boxes are illegal. They did that back in 2022. But a liberal activist lawyer named Mark Elias is challenging that ruling with a new lawsuit. And he timed it to take advantage of a new Supreme Court in Wisconsin that recently flipped back to liberal justices. 
For what it's worth, we are also seeing debates about this happen in states that are very important, swing states like Arizona. The uh, Democrat Secretary of State recently issued some rules about whether drop boxes have to be monitored or staffed throughout the day and the night. Those new rules have led to some confusion and promises of lawsuits by some Republican county recorders as of this morning. So those are the facts and data about at least one fraudulent case in Connecticut involving drop boxes and ballot harvesters, which may or may not suggest that we have a broader problem in this country with election integrity. Let me now give you my analysis and opinion. On January 12th, I shared with you how Taiwan's elections work. So let's talk about that again. As you know, there are no absentee ballots, no early voting, no electronic voting. You have to show up between 8 a.m., 4 p.m., and you get a paper ballot, and you have to vote on that paper ballot. That is then counted in public. Results are then declared that night. Taiwanese officials do this knowing that some will be left behind in the voting process, but their belief is that it's worth it all to ensure electoral integrity. It helps eliminate, if not completely eliminate, any funny business by the Chinese or any Taiwanese troublemakers. Plus, they argue that same-day voting creates a civic pride in making sure that you show up on Election Day. As I shared with you, people from all around the world fly back to Taiwan just to have their vote counted. So, if I may, that's pretty darn smart. In fact, I think that that is the only way to have high confidence in whatever the electoral outcome might be for both the winners and the losers in whatever election. Unfortunately, getting this country back to that to the way that we used to vote, that is going to take a while because there is this patchwork of laws across various states that promise all sorts of different things, which sometimes Democrats benefit from and oftentimes Republicans don't. So that's why, in my view, we now live in an era of if you can't beat them, you got to join them. In other words, if your state laws allow for you to harvest ballots, do it. There is a link in the transcripts that clarify your state laws although your local party offices have a pretty good understanding of this too. And for now, let's do it. It's a great way to get involved. You collect the ballots of your friends and neighbors, folks at church, gyms, retirement homes, and social clubs, whatever. So really think about becoming a ballot harvester if your state allows for it. But at some point, let's get back to how elections used to be. Same day voting, paper ballots, and I think a national holiday each November to ensure that more folks get to the polls. I think that would be good for this country, party affiliation aside. With that, let's get to our first break of the morning for subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com. Thank you. It is you and your financial support that are keeping this podcast alive. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, I thank you as well. I encourage you to do your part this morning and support the companies that support me. You will hear about them shortly. We'll be right back. Welcome to the new year, my friends, and welcome to more wintertime deals from the folks at American Giant. Yes, it is the company that makes clothing and other textiles right here in America. No foreign stuff. In fact, I recently bought another one of their hoodies, which is such a great thick jacket-like sweatshirt. Keeps me warm, but it still breathes. I love it. But if you're looking for other clothes or textiles, whether that be jeans, jackets, even blankets, American Giant has it all. And all of it is made in America. And I am telling you, folks, the moment that you touch a product from American Giant, you will feel the American quality like we used to have. 
You will feel the craftsmanship. You will see the care and you will wear the products that are ultimately made by your fellow Americans in factories in your hometowns. No China, no Mexico, right here at home. So support the folks that support this podcast and my goodness, support your country by buying from American Giant. And if you do, I'm going to get you 20% off your first order. So go to American-Giant.com. When you check out, use promo code RIGHT, that's W-R-I-G-H-T, and you are going to get 20% off your first order. So warm up your wintertime wardrobe and go to American-Giant.com, promo code RIGHT, and get that 20% off. And let's get this country going. Let's make America giant. If your mornings are like mine, you are looking for energy and not any old energy. You're looking for heart-healthy energy. That's why I enjoy taking something called Super Beats Heart Chews. It's a tasty way to get the energy that I'm looking for, plus performance and endurance. In fact, those are the things that attracted me to this product. But there's more. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Super Beats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. So that is why I pop two little chews in my mouth in the morning, and I am set no pills to swallow, no ingredients to mix or prepare. In short, it's the heart-healthy energy support that I look for and some blood pressure support to boot. So go to GetSuperBeats.com, that's B-E-E-T-S.com, and double your potential with Superbeats Heart Chews. And here's how you do it. Use promo code RIGHT and you will get a 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews for free plus 15% off your first order. My goodness, go to GetSuperBeats.com and use that promo code right and get the heart-healthy energy that you need and support for healthy blood pressure too, and you will be so glad you did. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our news this morning with a pivot towards international developments. And we focus this morning on news from the Middle East, starting with this. Multiple U.S. service members were wounded over the past three days with possible traumatic brain injuries, all because of Iranian-backed terror groups launching a series of missile strikes against the Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. The base was protected by a Patriot air defense system. Fifteen defense missiles were fired back at the Iranian assault, but at least two of Iran's weapons did make it through. This latest barrage means that U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria have now come under attack at least 130 to 140 times in just the past three and a half months. All told, that has left at least 70 U.S. military personnel injured with at least traumatic brain injuries, or TBIs. In response, there have been very limited retaliatory strikes by the U.S. government, none over the weekend, at least none as I counted, and that's all because the Biden White House fears escalation. They don't want a war with either Iran or its proxy terror groups like the Houthis in Yemen. Although that might be changing. Bloomberg News and the Washington Post report that the White House is considering whether to expand military operations against Iran's proxy groups in at least Yemen, if not beyond. And that's because Mr. Biden is now admitting that the airstrikes and the sanctions that he has authorized against Iran's various terror groups those have not worked. On Friday, a reporter asked our commander-in-chief, are the airstrikes in Yemen working? To which Mr. Biden said, quote, well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. 
If you're wondering why those terror attacks are going to continue, well, it is in no small part because Iran is now stepping up its support of the Houthis, providing them with more intelligence, weaponry, and personnel. The personnel, by the way, includes members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, or IRGC, plus members of Hezbollah, too. That proxy group is now on the ground in Yemen, helping the Houthis with their terror strikes in at least the Red Sea. Although, when I say terror strikes, I should add this caveat. According to the White House, the Houthis are not a full-blown terrorist organization. Last week, the Biden White House only sanctioned them with what's called a specially designated global terrorist group, or SDGT label. All right, let me unpack that, and let's talk about why that matters. There is a stronger designation for terror outfits. It's called a Foreign Terrorist Organization, or FTO designation. But Biden's team went with the weaker designation, which doesn't do a whole lot. Now, his defenders say that he was actually wise to do this because it gives humanitarian organizations another month, at least in Yemen, to alter their aid to the Houthi people. Well, be that as it may, the Houthi rebels are not acting with such benevolence and humanitarian care. They continue to fire missiles this morning in the Red Sea and put global trade further on the ropes. As reported by the New York Times over the weekend, Arab economies in places like Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon are down over $10 billion collectively since the start of the Hamas war in October. That will result in 230,000 more Arabs who will be pushed into poverty, especially in Egypt. Meanwhile, European uh, economies continue to suffer this morning, not just Arab economies. Oil supplies from the Middle East continue to be delayed with longer routing of oil tankers that have to go all the way down around Southern Africa. That then tightens supply, which was already pretty tight, following a series of issues from oil countries like Libya and Nigeria. Energy analysts predict some more bounciness in both of the supply and pricing for European buyers. And that will get a lot more volatile if oil tankers are hit in either the Red Sea or the Gulf of Aden. Meanwhile, there is growing and profound economic impacts on Israel's economy as well, not just Arab or European Israel's central bank said that last week, the war is costing their economy about 10% of their GDP, mostly because of reservists. They are being pulled from their jobs to the front lines. Now, interestingly, the Red Sea attacks have not had as much of an economic impact on Israel as compared to the Arab countries, at least not so far. And that's because most of Israel's imports and exports arrive by way of the Mediterranean Sea, not the Red Sea. In other words, as economists are pointing out, the Houthis are hurting Arabs economically more than they are the Israelis. One other economic data point to talk to you about, as you would expect, the economies in the Palestinian territories of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are getting absolutely hammered. Unemployment in the West Bank, for example, is now at 30% versus 14% before the war. As for the Gaza Strip, its economy is in total collapse. Their economic output is at about 16% of normal. And speaking of the Gaza Strip, let's talk about the latest in that fight. War continues in both the north and the south of Gaza this morning, with the Israelis concentrated mostly in the south, trying to hunt down the senior leaders of Hamas. They're also dropping flyers asking Palestinian civilians to help them, offering financial rewards to find Israeli hostages. As listeners know, that is a very difficult challenge. In fact, we're getting a greater sense of how difficult that is based on this. 
Recent analysis by Israeli forces show that the Hamas tunnel networks, where those hostages are at, it is now assessed to be upwards of 450 miles long. That is almost as big as the entire tunnel network of Beijing's subway system. And indeed, it is bigger than the subway tunnel networks of Moscow, London, and New York City. Meanwhile, there's growing concern in Israel this morning that they have not been able to kill or wound as many Hamas fighters as they would have hoped. The Wall Street Journal reports that Israel has killed or wounded around 30% of Hamas's fighters. U.S. intelligence puts that number a little bit lower at 20%. But either way, it's relatively low when you're trying to defeat a guerrilla force. And it raises the concern that Israel will run short of both time or war material that they need to get closer to their stated goal of destroying Hamas. It also raises the possibility that at some point, Israel will have no other options left to destroy Hamas, but to adopt far more aggressive operations, much like they did in the northern part of Gaza. And to give you a sense of what that means, estimates are that about half of Gaza's buildings have been damaged or destroyed so far in this war, and that about 70% of their residential complexes in Gaza have been rendered unlivable. That is based on analysis by the Wall Street Journal and echoed by the Jerusalem Post. Finally this morning, we also have growing numbers of missile strikes to talk about in other countries in the Middle East, all related to this war in Israel. First, we have had more strikes and rocket fire over the weekend between Israel and Lebanon. Next, the country of Iran is firing missiles into Iraq and Syria too. Analysts suggest it's probably being done as a flex to show Israel and the United States that it has some medium-range ballistic missile firepower at its disposal. Iran also fired some missiles at a group of people in the neighboring country of Pakistan. They are known as the Baluch. They are a Sunni tribe of Muslims of about 10 million very poor people that have been long targeted by the Shia government in Tehran. That strike by Iran on Pakistani soil caused a minor dust-up last week with that government in Pakistan in the capital of Islamabad. Those guys then fired back their own missiles into Iran at those uh, Baluchi poor folks. Not much came of Pakistan's strike other than perhaps restoring some Pakistani pride. Finally, one more missile strike to talk about. Israel fired a missile that killed at least five members of Iran's military group in Syria. They killed what is called the IRGC's intel chief in that country who worked for an elite group that is called the Quds Force. Iran is now promising revenge for that strike, but not just against the Israelis, also against the United States. So those are the latest facts and data this morning out of the war in the Middle East, which we can say fairly is expanding this morning with more U.S. personnel injured. And we also got this late last night. Two U.S. Navy SEALs were declared dead yesterday. As listeners might recall, they went missing off the coast of Somalia about a week ago, trying to track down Iranian weapons that were being sent to the Houthis. Those guys were successful in finding and seizing those Iranian weapons, but rough waters led to one of the SEALs falling into the ocean. The other dove in and tried to save him. Unfortunately, search and rescue operations were unsuccessful. So please... Let us pray for their families this morning. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. So here's the fundamental challenge. The United States has lost deterrence because our enemies perceive or believe that Mr. Biden and his Pentagon are feckless. So everybody in the Middle East this morning is just firing all kinds of missiles to accomplish whatever internal goals they might have. 
So how do you reestablish deterrence? Well, not easily, but I would give you is three options to consider this morning. The first is to get to the root cause of the violence in the Middle East, and that is Iran. They are the leading terror sponsor in the Middle East, and they are driving this crisis. So to make them afraid of us again, you're going to have to kill them and blow up a lot of their stuff. And that means that you will need to work with the Israelis to conduct sabotage operations inside of Iran, up to and including a massive set of strikes against key Iranian personnel and facilities. And when I say massive, they need to be crippling, just a a whisker short of what the Iranians would likely conclude to be a full-blown war. But even if we do that, Iran would almost certainly strike back probably in the U.S. homeland with either cyber strikes or their Hezbollah sleeper cells. And that would mean that a lot of Americans would die or be injured, and some of our key infrastructure would be disabled, like our electrical or water systems. And then at that point, you would just have to buckle down, weathering those strikes and then counter-strike again and again. And if done properly and over time, you would degrade Iran's abilities and their and that of their proxies. They would start to bleed out and they would stop. And for at least some period of time, you would reestablish deterrence. So that's one path. The second path is doing some version of what Team Biden is doing this morning. These little pinprick airstrikes in places like Yemen or Iraq or Syria, maybe Iran, And they're designed ultimately to cause some damage, but not much. It really just creates a veneer that you're doing something. Although the veneer gets stripped away when people like Mr. Biden publicly admit that they're not really doing much. They're not accomplishing much, which is precisely what Mr. Biden did on Friday. Oopsie. And that's why I believe that this second path is likely and arguably the worst of all three. And that is because it accomplishes very little except confirming to the world that you are weak and afraid. And that weakness only emboldens others, not just the Iranians or the Houthis, but also the Russians, the North Koreans and the Chinese. The third path then out of this mess is something that a lot of us are probably uncomfortable with. It's a tactical retreat. You pull out U.S. forces from Iraq and Syria You minimize the fifth fleet in Bahrain, and then you give the Israelis what they need to defend themselves, and then you step back, and what would probably happen is the Saudis and the Iranians would fight it out, and that would probably force the Chinese to step in and deal with it. They can then either send in their navy to try to settle this, um, but they would do something because they need Arab oil, certainly more than we do. And speaking of oil, there would certainly be shocks and impacts in the oil markets, but we could manage that. One of the ways we could do that is by reinstating a ban of foreign sales of U.S. crude oil and keep it here at home, just as we did back in the 1970s through the year 2015. We also have some new great supplies coming online from Canada. They've got a new pipeline that is set to, I believe, this month or next. Plus, we've got a big oil discovery that we've talked about down in Guyana as well. But the bottom line is this, no matter which of the three options you might choose that I laid out for you, whether that be hitting Iran with some major strikes or second, hitting the Iranian proxies with these little pinprick strikes or three, a tactical retreat. Well, there are no easy solutions to stopping the escalation in the Middle East this morning. The Biden White House has lost deterrence and Middle East actors are no longer afraid of us. And that is what we're left with. 
That is the ugly reality, but that is the reality this morning with no easy options. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. Listeners like you have been asking me lately, Brian, you talk a lot about a troubled world and that makes me nervous. Help me get prepared. What should I do? Well, one company that I am so proud to partner with and tell you all about is Jace Medical. They provide life-saving prescription medications, including antibiotics, plus medicines for blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, and they give you up to a 12-month supply. Now, the key benefit to that is you can then put those medications on your shelves for either daily use or in cases of emergencies. And all it takes, folks, to get this great service is to go to jacemedical.com. It's J-A-S-E medical.com. Then you will fill out a simple online form. And in some cases, you'll have a quick phone call with one of their board certified physicians. And in no time flat, you will get medications delivered right to your doorstep. And that is a big deal for a number of my listeners, especially in rural and backcountry areas who say that Jace, they have just been a lifesaver and a time saver for them. Meanwhile, others have told me that they chose Jace because they were going abroad and it was just so easy to work with this company. Still others were worried about global supply chains, especially with China and India, and they wanted some medications on the shelf just in case. Well, whatever your motivation, folks, go to jacemedical.com. That's J-A-S-E medical.com and enter promo code right at checkout. And that, of course, is W-R-I-G-H-T. And when you do, you are going to get a great discount on your order. Again, folks, that's promo code right at J-A-S-E medical.com. And do this today, folks. I promise it is money well spent. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a listener question since it was from one of my paid subscribers at rightreport.substack.com. Dylan in Sparks, Nevada wrote in. He said, Brian, Ron DeSantis is out. What do you think this means for the 2024 election and how does it fit with your State of the Union series? Dylan, good question. And you're quite right. Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his campaign yesterday for the presidency, which is a it's a disappointing end for a man that a lot of conservative folks were inspired by, given his solid stewardship of Florida. But it's not surprising at all. And here's why. Last Thursday, I covered the poll out of Iowa from NBC News that showed that a majority of voters in Iowa, 61 percent, said that they would still vote for Donald Trump even if he were convicted of a crime. Another 19% said that they would be even more likely to support him if he were convicted. And that's true amongst a lot of conservatives, if not most conservatives in many U.S. states, at least given what we see in national polls and swing state polls. And here's what that tells me about the electorate, as I shared with you last week as part of that State of the Union episode. Conservative voters in this country want revenge or justice or retribution, whatever word you want to choose. And here's why. A lot of folks feel that they were cheated out of their 2016 vote, all because of the FBI and the Department of Justice's unlawful investigation into those absolutely bogus Trump-Russia allegations. That stole Donald Trump's first term to do what we elected him to do, and that's serve as our president. And so they think that Donald Trump deserves a second shot and probably to deal with the deep state threat that tossed him out the first time. 
Second, I think that there are a lot of voters out there, conservative and otherwise, who also feel cheated out of their 2020 vote. All because, well, in part, the media hid credible allegations of Joe Biden's corruption. They, along with dozens of former Intel officers, said that the Hunter Biden laptop was fake, fake news. And they shut down any media coverage of it and any voter consideration of it. That was wrong. And I think a lot of voters look at that and say, you know, you stole my 2020 vote as well. Say nothing of the other allegations of fraudulent voting related to the ballot harvesting or stuffing, like we spoke of earlier. That is that view. Lastly, I think if you put that together with uh, the fact that a lot of conservatives are pretty angry as we watch the southern border collapse, the economy go, uh, well, into the toilet, and now the world is on fire. So if you put all of that together, that is a pretty motivating reason to vote for Donald Trump. And while all of that is true, I think that the straw that broke the camel's back for campaigns like Ron DeSantis is when Joe Biden's attorney general and various Democrat prosecutors started indicting Trump. And at that point, he became a political martyr. And I don't think anything or anyone could have stopped what we have seen so far in this election, which is candidate after candidate just dropping out because they can't get traction with voters. And that's all because these voters, they're looking for revenge, retribution. They want to give it to the man in D.C. And Donald Trump is the guy to throw the punch. So what comes next? Well, there is only one horse left in this race besides Donald Trump, and that's uh, Nikki Haley. But it's very difficult for me to see how she wins any future contest in the environment that I just described, unless the Biden Department of Justice throws Donald Trump in prison. And at that point, oh, Lord have mercy, all bets are off. I'm sure she could win the nomination by default, although I think that the country would be set on fire. But we shall see. We've got quite a year ahead, and I will be watching for all developments and, as ever, keep you posted. Folks, if you would like me to answer one of your questions on the podcast, it is easy to do. Either donate via my Stripe account, which you will find a link for in the show notes. Just make sure you leave your email, and I'll be in touch. Otherwise, go to writereport.substack.com, sign up, and at the bottom of each day's Substack post, you can leave me a comment or ask me a question. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.